Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning on this 17th of March, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network, or you're listening on the Faith Radio stream at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. So good day, good morning, good evening to you wherever you are, whatever point in time you're listening. It is 317, making it uh, a couple of things today. First of all, you know, every day. This is the day the Lord has made, so we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Um, for some, this will be the day of salvation, absolutely celebrating that. That is uh, in the spirit of St. Patrick, who definitely wanted everybody to know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. St. Patrick was a 5th century missionary committed to sharing the gospel. He's credited with the spread of the gospel in Ireland. He's one of Ireland's—well, uh, he is Ireland's patron saint— If you're a descendant of the Picts or the Saxons, Patrick likely appears somewhere in the history of the faith of your family. So there you go. Um, I do think it's a good day since it's St. Patrick's Day. Always a good day to remind ourselves what the Bible says about saints um, and the, the universality of the application of that term to those who believe in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are those who are then institutionally sainted, like, right, they, they are in much the same way that some people are knighted, some people are conferred sainthood uh, by an institution of the church. And so that's the way St. Patrick becomes a saint. But St. Patrick became a saint before he became an institutional saint. He was already a saint, sainting, you know, desiring that everyone else would be saints, right? The, those of us who are in Christ Jesus are, in fact, all saints. That's the way that um, we are referred to in Scripture, and it, it helps me to recall the conversations that we've had with Addison Bevere on this topic. Um, you might recall his book, Saints Becoming More Than Christians. I just encourage you to maybe um, listen again to the conversation we had with Addison. I don't know. It's been a couple of years now, maybe, or at least a year. The other um, thing that came to mind this morning as I was preparing to talk with you is that yesterday we did this, I'm going to call it an exercise. I mean, it wasn't like jumping jacks. No morning calisthenics. But um, it was 316, and so that inspired us to talk about John 316, which then led us to talk about other 316s in the Bible, and that was um, kind of fun and inspiring. And so I thought today, hey, what if we do some 317s? Because there are some great 317 verses. I mean, you know, all in Scripture is um, inspired by God and um, worthy of our study and consideration. That was one of our 316 verses, right? So that was 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, 2 Timothy 3.17 is a follow-on. So part of what I did was, hey, I looked at our 316 verses, and I went a verse before and after and kind of, you know, right, see what 317 says in those. Um, 
So here's from Second Timothy. So yesterday's 3.16 verse and then today's 3.17 verse. All in Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, what about John 3.16? I mean, you know, reading it in context uh, is important. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. So John 3.16, so well known, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then verses 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And who who believes in Christ is not condemned. He that believes uh, is he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Um, so uh, I commend to you Zephaniah 3.17, Matthew 3.17, Colossians 3.17, James 3.17. I made a whole list. They're all good. These stand out to me. Uh, maybe I will share them on social media um, at some point today because there's so many good 3.17 verses. Um, how is the gospel going to go forth through you today as an ambassador of the king and the kingdom? You know. Yeah, in following in the steps of St. Patrick. Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings. Um, He likes saints. Mm -hmm. We could talk about that. We're going to talk about American higher ed. We're going to talk about the challenge of critical race theory. And yes, we're going to talk about the fact that USA Today has named a man as one of the women of the year. Mm, That's going on in the world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is back, media reporter for The Daily Wire, also tweets at The Rights Writer. Good morning, good sir. Ah, top of the morning to you. Ah, top of the morning to you. Are you wearing green? Uh, well, I, I haven't put yet. any on yet today, mm-hmm. but yet. Uh, I, yet. I need, I need I, to get a, yeah, at, a little at pin this early At this early hour of the day, uh, many of my questions should be followed by the word yet. So there you go. Um, when you think about what's going on in higher education in America, um, one of the challenges that faces many, many institutions of higher learning is the conversation about critical race theory. That has uh, come home um, to many Christian college campuses across the country. So let's read people in on what's going on there. Yeah, this is a a longstanding issue uh, at Grove City College going back uh, for some time. Uh, There there were several students and some faculty uh, who were upset about some of the developments that have been taking place and some of the inroads that critical race theory has made, uh, both uh, among staff and among some of the faculty. There is a course uh, now in, um, in diversity there that uses the book How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, as well as a book, uh, books by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, of course, she's in a relationship with a woman, but they're, both of those books uh, that are used oppose the idea of Christianity because they teach moral relativism, that discrimination might be okay uh, if it's used against one group uh, versus another. It's wrong if it's used to oppress a group, but it's right if an oppressed group uses it against a majority group, according to Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, Also, there was a chapel presentation 
by Jamar Tisby, who once wrote, quote, white Christians have to face the possibility that everything they've learned about how to practice their faith has been designed to explicitly or implicitly reinforce a racist structure. And uh, in a word, they said, no, we don't. Um, on this program, as you were just saying, you read all the 316 verses yesterday. Now, there's an important 315 verse, which is First <laughs> Timothy 315, where the church says, it, it says the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Of course, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if everything Christians have been taught about Christianity is false because it is based on racism or to further racism, then it means the gates of hell have prevailed. Uh, racism essentially would be stronger than the gospel in that case. Uh, at no point in the 2,000-year history of Christianity has the, has the church ever taught anything like uh, guilt by association or, or uh, biological determinism. It hasn't taught racism, but it hasn't taught uh, Ibram X. Kendi either. So there have been petitions back and forth, statements from uh, administrators and statements uh, from students. Uh, there's a petition to uh, to end all of this. And really, as you say, this really gets to the kernel of what it means to have an education that is explicitly Christian, um, particularly when you're dealing with academics. I, I worked in academia for a, a brief period of time. Of course, the, the radio uh, broadcast is associated with a university founded by Billy Graham. So you have this history uh, of academics who are uh, always open to new ideas and they always want to ex explore new ideas, which is good. Uh, however, the idea, as G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, the idea of opening the mind is the same as opening the mouth, which is to close it again around something solid. And so we digest what is what is true and good, but we see it through the lens of the gospel, and we do not simply accept wholesale ideologies, uh, particularly ones uh, such as CRT that have portions of, of them that are very much opposed to the Christian worldview. So later today, Ben, um, actually in the in the final conversation here in in hour two. So at uh, at seven thirty Central Time, we're going to be talking with uh, Baylor professor, um, uh, yeah, George Yancey. I, I had a different mm -hmm. Yancey on my mind, and I knew that wasn't going to be right. Um, he he has a, a model that he is proposing. Um, to get us beyond racial division. He's describing it as a unifying alternative to both colorblindness and anti-racism. And it's based in like a, a model of mutual accountability and it seeks the common good um, for all. So I am hoping that we are going to learn some things about how to have the conversation differently and how to actually move forward in conversation. Um, because I think where we are now is a bit of a stalemate um, and, and I think what's going on at Grove City College is a little bit of evidence of that, right? There's these, you know, accusations lobbed back and forth, but maybe not substantive um, conversations that could actually move things beyond, um, you know, sort of entrenched debate mode. Um, so I'm looking forward to learning what we can from Professor Yancey later today. Um, we better take a, a very brief break. When we come back, can we pivot to just a really broad ranging conversation about what's going on in America related to, to um, the push on the, what I will describe, transgender front. Could we could we roam around in that conversation? Because there's a lot going on across the country. There is, and it sounds most intriguing. Let's do so. All right. We're going to continue our conversation with Ben Johnson in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Christ be with me. Christ be with me. Christ be 
All right, we're continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson. He's the rights writer for, um, well, he's the rights writer. That's how he tweets. That's who he is. He is also a media reporter for the Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, apparently employees at Disney are planning uh, several walkouts um, because they don't think their employer is pushing hard enough on the political front related to a bill before the Florida legislature um, on on how and what Florida schools should teach related to LGBTQIA plus plus ideologies, identities, identities and practices, which is a mouthful in and of itself. Um, USA Today has named a man as one of the women of the year. Um, and we've got school districts that are hiding children's gender change from parents. All of this in the context of a national wave of efforts um, related to separating parents from their children in medical decision-making um, related to trans ideologies. I mean, what in the world is going on here? Well, I guess if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be a word that they uh, use quite a bit when it comes to this, but it's usually used by the other side, and that would be erasure. Uh, essentially, you're seeing women being erased from women's spaces. Uh, so when it when it comes to USA Today, as you mentioned, they they named uh, Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration, as one of the women of the year uh, in in this uh, area. Uh, last December, the Golden Globes awarded uh, uh, Best Actress in a Television Drama to M.J. Rodriguez, the the most successful contestant in the history of Jeopardy, is a transgender individual, uh, Amy Schneider. You've seen uh, records being set in female sports by swimmers or in high school sports by track and field athletes who were mediocre male athletes, but who end up setting the record when they're competing uh, in, in a female category. So you're seeing women's sports, women's spaces, uh, women's awards all going to men. Uh, it, it would be the ultimate triumph of the patriarchy, essentially, but it's being celebrated as though it's some sort of progressive step forward. So uh, that's that's a major problem. Uh, you're talking about Disney, and of course what's going on in, in Florida is that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to arrest at least the spread of the ideology and restore some parents' rights and a little bit of privacy and childhood to children in the state. Uh, essentially what he said is that teachers in grades K through 3 cannot encourage discussions uh, in, in the classroom to have discussions about gender identity, that is to say transgenderism, and, and sexual uh, practices in general, particularly uh, where it comes to uh, uh, either sex education or uh, homosexual discussions. And that's the teachers bring it up. This has been dubbed the don't say gay bill, which doesn't say anything about not saying the word gay. It says that this should not be taught to children K through three. And the only problem with the bill is that it stops at three. Uh, when someone is eight or nine years old, I, I'm still not sure that it's really the teacher's role to begin indoctrinating them in this kind of an ideology or, or at what point that would become appropriate. Uh, that's the realm of teachers uh, to teach information. It is not the realm of teachers to violate the moral code of the parents who send their children there and pay their salaries. So, uh, as you mentioned, Disney has uh, has pushed back on this. They've tried to oppose this bill, and it looks like uh, Ron DeSantis is standing tall on this one. So that's good. Now, just broadening the discussion a little bit, there is an increased concern, and I think people are beginning to realize the danger of some of these transgender uh, treatments, if, if they can be called treatments, uh, some of the transformations that take place 
either through drugs or through surgery. In the state of Texas, uh, it's currently been enjoined by a judge, but the state of Texas uh, has a law which says that if someone has uh, reconstructive surgery uh, of their reproductive anatomy, that's a form of child abuse if that person is under, uh, under the age of, of adulthood. Uh, one of the state officials there has said, essentially, you are mutilating someone who doesn't have the ability to give consent because they haven't reached an age where they would give informed consent about uh, the permanent change and alteration of their own body. Uh, and it's funny, it's not just in red states. In France, there has been a massive change in, uh, in the way that things are done in France. The uh, National Academy of Medicine on February 28th has said that practitioners should exercise the greatest caution in giving puberty blockers or hormones to young people who are underage. In Sweden, this is the, the hub of the sexual revolution in the globe. There's nowhere that has is more advanced in the sexual revolution than Sweden. But the National Board of Health and Welfare uh, put out a statement that's been translated in English. It says, quote, it calls for the restraint with treatment in persons under 18 years of age. According to the authority, the risk of hormone treatment currently outweigh the possible benefits for the group as a whole. So administering transgender hormones to underage people has been discouraged in Sweden. And if you've lost Sweden, you've lost the conversation, at least momentarily. <laughs> it is um, amazing to me how very, very um, narrowly focused people, people for whom this is their issue, they, it's as if they literally can't see uh, the rest of the story or what's going on in the rest of the world. The, um, I don't know, is myopathy, is that a word? They're, their very narrow focus on this particular concern or this set or constellation of particular concerns, it is a worldview. Like, this is a totalizing system for people who um, are seeking to press what I will call the LGBTQIAA++ agenda. Like, you got to add letters because the ones that we have historically used simply don't cover it. And and to say sexual identity um, or SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity, kind of sanitizes the conversation. It helps to make the list um, of letters because it brings into view the not only the growing confusion related to this, but the desire for there to be a growing confusion related to this. Yes, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I occasionally speak with academics and the way that uh, they cover themselves, they will say LGBTIIA+ or any other identification not covered therein. So uh, <laughs> sounds like legal, right? That's like, yeah, yeah, this legal covering, like, oh, well, and anything else that we didn't cover. I want you to, you know, feel like you're covered in this. So um, this is, uh, this occurred to me in the conversation related to um, whether or not we're going to do away with daylight savings time. Right. Um, I am going to identify as a person in East Coast time, even if, we shift the, because I need I need I need the light earlier in the day. So I don't really care if the rest of you are want to only identify with one kind of time. I am going to be trans temporal and I am going to start identifying with East Coast time because our our signal, our radio signal, like it literally affects us. Um, we, we, we literally don't have as much power on our radio signal if we all go back to the, you know, whatever time it is that. Gets keeps it dark later. That time I don't like. 
Yes. There you go. Ah. So I'm, there I want to be transtemporal. Can I be transtemporal? Would you I, I honor? Have, no. Would you honor I, me I, as transtemporal? I, I honor and affirm your mm-hmm. self-identification on time. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, am going to stay in this time zone because I need the <laughs> I need the sun at night. I didn't realize there was a 7 a.m. until I started doing the show. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. It's a good. It's good. It's good. Um, yes, and I suppose that because people can listen anytime, anywhere via the Faith Radio app, the show is already transtemporal. People already experience me as transtemporal. So it's not as if you know I'm I'm a total uh, loon by suggesting that I identify as transtemporal. There you go. I, I had to get it in today somewhere, and you provided me an opportunity to do it. So thank you, sir. Well, thank you, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. That's Ben Johnson. He is uh, he tweets at the Rights Writer. He also is a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. We'll be right back. I know. It's a terribly serious day. Um, it is a ter- terribly serious day. And I um, apologize to those of you who were offended by my declaration of trans- transtemporalism. I don't know. You can just spend some time thinking about it. I mean, I, if you're if you're not experiencing me in real time at 729 Central Time uh, and you're experiencing me at any other time, I mean, uh, then, uh, you know. You're experiencing me as transtemporal. All right, that's enough of that. Uh, we have a lot of headlines related to Ukraine today. Yesterday, the, UK, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered a passionate, eloquent, and emotionally charged speech to the U.S. Congress. If you did not see it, it is absolutely available pretty much everywhere online. And the reason it's worth seeing and not just listening to is there is a video, a uh, two-and-a-half-minute video in the middle of the speech that is absolutely worth seeing. Now, why do I say that? Because the speech is designed to move you and designed to move me. It was certainly designed to move the members of Congress and to move the U.S. president. Um, so the speech came in a series that uh, of speeches being delivered by um, President Zelensky, uh, whose country is under siege, now entering Wow, they've been at it for three weeks. Um, it, this has been much longer than anyone anticipated. Um, the Ukrainians uh, are standing up in ways that I think surprises many. Apparently, it doesn't surprise many members of the U.S. military who have been training the Ukrainian armed forces since, uh, well, for about a decade. Um, the Ukrainian military has been um, reinvented in uh, over the last decade. Um, professionalized, and we are seeing uh, evidence of that in real time. Russia continues to uh, commit war crimes, and yesterday the president of the United States uh, agreed to the labeling of his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, as a war criminal. Um, Evidence for that, the targeting of a maternity ward just days ago, um, Ukrainians targeted and killed while waiting in line to get bread, um, families sheltering in a theater in the besieged city of Mariupol. That building was targeted. There are apparently some survivors being pulled from the rubble, but the numbers there are going to be horrific. Um, some 1,400 people were in the building at the time, um, you know, as a place. And, and apparently on both sides of the building, visible from planes above, was the word children. 
And so that is absolutely intentional targeting of a shelter where women and children were seeking refuge um, from the barrage of uh, of military uh, assault from the Russians. So millions of people have now fled Ukraine, millions more internally displaced. The world is absolutely responding, um, not only through sanctions, but for, through the delivery of real assets. The United States has now committed more than $13 billion over time to assisting the Ukrainians in their effort to repel the Russian invasion of their homeland. Um, and uh, the first billion of that has arrived, another billion on the way um, in real material and military aid, all of it defensive in nature. Um, so we want to continue our conversation and talk with Elizabeth Newman um, about all of this. She's going to help us, you know, assess things, give a risk assessment of what's going on and her view of developments in Ukraine. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Elizabeth Newman is back. She's the chief strategy officer at Moonshot, national security analyst at ABC News, a board member for the National Immigration Forum, a member of the Council on National Security and Immigration, and former DHS assistant secretary for counterterrorism. Elizabeth, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Good morning. So um, you're also um, a mom. So uh, take us into Mariupol um, and, and what is happening among people there. Well, overnight, we received a dispatch from uh, the two known remaining international journalists that are in Mariupol. And um, it's uh, it's if anybody want to look wants to look up the story and the pictures, um, it's an AP story and it is vivid in its descriptions. I, w- I won't go into a lot of the um, details for the little ears that are listening, but it's it's quite devastating. Um, Mariupol is on the south side of the country. It's a seaport. It's got about 430,000 people. To put that into context, it's like the size of Minneapolis, Minnesota, or Tampa, Florida proper, not maybe the whole urban area, but the actual, you know, um, city limits. Um, So it's a sizable city, and they've been under siege for two weeks. Uh, Last week, they were in the news because of a bombed maternity hospital. This week, it's this um, attack on the theater that you were just talking about where hundreds of women and children were using it as a shelter. Um, They have been trying for weeks as a part of the diplomatic efforts to create humanitarian corridors so people can exit. And there, there was some good news earlier this week that people were able to get out, um, but there's still, you know, lots of people there, and it is completely surrounded by Russian soldiers. The roads are mined, the ports are blocked, food is running out, electricity is gone, the water is sparse. Reports are that the residents are melting snow to drink and burning furniture to warm their hands. And probably the most devastating part of this AP story is the descriptions of the people that are losing their um, their babies, their toddlers, their uh, parents, and um, they they can't bury them. They have to leave them out on the street, and then they're trying to, um, the city is trying to pick up the, the dead and bring them to these mass graves, but it's difficult to even do that because they are being shelled uh, at a rate of one airstrike a minute, um, and it's been going on for two weeks. 
So it is um, unlike anything we have seen in modern times. Um, and it's quite, um, yeah, as a, as a, as it, you know, take the security analyst out of it, like as a, as a Christian, like we just, it's okay for us to just want to put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn because it's just devastating. Uh, the Washington Post um, did a series or it's an article, you know, where they, they where they show the Ukrainian city and its map side by side with U.S. counterparts. And Mariupol is mapped there matching Minneapolis. Um, and I think that for many people listening right now, um, that will help them understand the size and scope of um, what we're talking about. When we're talking about Mariupol, when we're talking about uh, the shelling of a maternity ward, when we're talking about the shelling of a theater where families are um, seeking to hide and find safety, when we're talking about roads out of town being mined, um, when we're talking about humanitarian corridors, you know, I want you, if you're listening in, in, you know, in the Twin Cities, I want you to think about driving to Canada. Like, right, when, you know, loading up what you can in your car um, and and how safe you would feel driving to Canada with no um, with no promise of air support. I'm just saying, like, right, that brings it into into view for us. Um, Tampa, Florida, Long Beach, California. Those are also cities of the same size of, of Mariupol in Ukraine. Um, talk with us, Elizabeth. Now put on your, you know, your national security hat. Um, for a minute um, and and talk with us about risk assessments like we actually hear people refer to World War three or we hear people refer to uh, nuclear war once unthinkable now in the realm of possibility can you put your risk assessment hat on for us for just a moment yeah so especially at the beginning so many people were trying to understand um, what was going on with Putin, and there were concerns that he might not be a rational actor anymore. I think some of those concerns and some of those assessments have tamped down just a bit in that uh, he clearly miscalculated. He clearly had um, a vision of how this war was going to go, that they... Uh, would overwhelm them, they would quickly win, and that, um, you know, I, I don't know if he just believed his own propaganda or if he has been um, so isolated uh, over the last two years and, and people fear him, so nobody wanted to tell him the truth. It, it's hard to say why he miscalculated, but there was a clear miscalculation in the, the plans. And the the concern that everybody had is he's a bit of a trapped animal like he's he's likely not going to win this war now that doesn't mean ukraine wins but there's not a scenario where he has enough uh people he he doesn't have enough um weapons he doesn't have enough money to actually take over the entirety of ukraine and continue to to um, to manage it right or to own it um, in a in a way that uh, is not is sovereign. Like what's going to happen is even if Kiev falls, even if uh, the government falls, there's there's still going to be this insurgency. And the soldiers on the front lines reportedly were not expecting this. It's hard to know exactly what they were told as propaganda, but the, there is a sense that. 
um, he, the growing realization that whatever his original objective was, uh, was poorly planned and they're not going to be able to achieve it. And so now you hear people talk about like, we got to give him an off ramp, which let's be clear, like he is a war criminal. He, um, he deserves to be prosecuted and thrown in jail. But when we talk about off ramp, what we mean is what is a way to get him out of Ukraine that um, saves lives? It's not about, um, you know, saving face as much as under uh, for Putin, as much as understanding his psyche. Uh, we we're you know, the, everybody's looking for a way for him to, you know, claim victory and leave, and then we can deal with the, the um, war crimes and the, the other consequences later. The, the alternative is the more that he feels like a caged animal the, um, with his back against the wall and he's not winning and he's facing tremendous domestic pressures, he's increasingly isolating himself, he's, not, he's refusing to see all but like a handful of people, I think because he's afraid he's going to, you know, potentially... Um, be the subject of a coup or an assassination attempt, um, you know, the concern there is that he might be willing to, to do other things like chemical weapons use in Ukraine or attack a Western commercial flight or a cyber attack or a missile attack on something outside of Ukraine. And the worst case scenario would be use of nuclear weapons, whether that's uh, tactically within Ukraine or the strategic nuclear weapons, which are pointed at uh, NATO sites in the United States, quite frankly. So the the game that everybody's playing is trying to draw very clear boundaries and lines with Putin so that he knows that we will retaliate if he crosses one of these lines, but we're trying to also not pressure him so much that he um, in that, uh, and, and again, it's it's not that anybody, I haven't heard anybody assert that he has um, lost his mind. It's rather just the psychology of somebody who is on the precipice of losing everything because he miscalculated and um, he's going to, you know, could lose his power domestically. Those types of types of people tend to make really bad decisions and we don't want him to choose one of those other escalatory paths. So you see the West really grappling with like, how do we how do we support Ukraine as much as possible? Because we want them to survive and win. And it's devastating what we're seeing um, occur there. And at the same time, not create a scenario where uh, we're playing into Putin's hands and escalating things and which could quickly lead to you know, sadly, nuclear war. And and you're right, we we, we have not in our generation um, really dealt with this. Uh, it's it, like it's that you have to go back to the 1960s to remember a time where it was this precarious. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So, Elizabeth, I want to continue this conversation. And one of the things that I just would like for you to reflect on um, is that I think that these conversations do happen um, from like two different places. There's this view of the conversation that is exactly as you have just framed it. It's basically a conversation about America's national interest. It is a conversation about um, states of mind and warfare and calculus. And then there's this other um, way that people are processing all the information that's out there. And you've alluded to it as well. It's this um, it's, you know, it's from the heart of humanity. It's this common humanity conversation. It's an appeal to liberty and justice. And this is just wrong. And we ought to do everything that we can um, to change this reality and save these people. Um, 
the the saving language, the liberation language, um, I hear increasingly, and then I don't hear it balanced with um, conversations about what that could mean on the escalatory front. So um, maybe help us recognize that the conversation does take place in both like head and heart. Um, and my mm-hmm. guess is you have had to figure out how to do that over time um, as an analyst of these things. So can you help us do that when we come back from a very brief break? Just kind of give us some thinking uh, thinking points on, on that particular front. Mm-hmm, definitely. Okay, I love that. We're talking with Elizabeth Newman. She's a sister in Christ. She's also just a brilliant um, analyst, uh, and she serves uh, in the area of counterterrorism. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Elizabeth Newman, she serves with an organization called Moonshot. She is a former DHS Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism, uh, and I love that she uh, talks with us. Elizabeth, um, how do you sort of have both conversations in your head and heart at the same time? Yeah, it's a good question, Carmen. I was reflecting on that. Um, I mean, personally, I start the morning with scripture, right? I, I, I start grounded um, and ask for the Lord's perspective, um, you know, and there is sadly um, a lot of scripture that speaks to uh, the devastation that that the Ukrainian people are experiencing right now. And um, I am, a, I think I've mentioned this before, but I am a big believer that um, we as a uh, society, especially Western culture, are really bad at grieving and at lament. Um, we tend to rush really quickly towards, okay, how do I fix it? And um, some of, you know, if you have a biblical worldview, s- part of that is recognizing that we as human beings are limited and that the world has fallen and that there is mm-hmm. so much to, to just be heartbroken over. And it is okay for us to cry out to the Lord um, and weep and mourn with those that are mourning in Ukraine right now. And that is absolutely um, seen by God and valued by God. And I don't fully understand how he uses that, but he tells us that it um, has power. Um, so there's an aspect as a believer that we can tap into something that defies like the human way of um uh, you know, I got to do something. <laughs> and um, sometimes the doing something in, in, the, in the eyes of the Lord is actually just being willing to sit and mourn with those who are mourning, even though we're not physically mm-hmm. with them. Um, our tears and our prayers matter. So um, I, I don't want to skip that point. Um, when it comes to the, the people that are inside the government, um, it, our engagement with our representatives in Congress and, and the people, um, friends of mine that are um, sitting in uh, the rooms in Washington, D.C., wrestling with these really tough decisions, um, you know, they, they swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States. Um, and so the, the frame, framing for them is very much Um, an obligation to protect and defend the United States. And in doing so, that does not mean that we do not care about the rest of the world. Of course we do. 
Um, but it, it provides kind of an order and a way in which you think through um, the, the risk calculation. And um, certainly one of the things that has been so powerful about President Zelensky is his masterful use of rhetoric um, and his appeals uh, to, he, is, he has spoken to many countries at this point. And, and you were talking about head and heart, he is doing both. He is making a logical argument and he is appealing to the heart. Um, many people are drawing parallels that he's a, a George Washington type figure or Winston Churchill type figure. Um, and, and he will be studied, um, you know, regardless of how this all plays out, he will be studied in um, uh, history classes and um, uh, communications classes and political classes as just being this tremendous leader that quite frankly, we haven't seen in so long. And so I th think as, uh, as human beings, we're just grateful to see a leader who's willing to sacrifice his own life um, to lead his people. Like it, it really is something to watch. Um, he is making a plea for more support to close the airspace over Ukraine. Like he, he literally did a video yesterday when he addressed Congress and um, it was a very powerful video. And the, the closing line was close the sky over Ukraine. And there's been a lot of talk about no fly zones. Um, and, you know, when you get into the miller, military tactical, uh, you know, whether that would help or not, it, it, it actually doesn't seem like it would be of much help to even try a, a no fly zone because most of the um, things that are happening, that the shelling that's occurring is long-range missiles and um, uh, airplanes don't help you with that. Uh, but other things do. Um, and so there are um, uh, some, some good developments where the Biden administration has agreed to provide more high-tech defensive weaponry um, as part of an additional $800 million in military aid. Um, and so you, you are seeing that even though the West is saying, no, we can't, we can't go so far as to put a no-fly no zone over Ukraine um, because it will inevitably lead to uh, something Russian hitting something of NATO and that triggers section uh, Article 5 of uh, the NATO um, defense clause. And all of a sudden, this is no longer a Russia-Ukraine war. This is a Russia-NATO war, which brings nuclear weapons into it really fast. So the um, the cooler heads, if you will, are, are saying, like, let's, let's try to avoid that at all costs, but let's do everything short of um, creating that situation where Russia is likely going to hit a NATO um, entity. Um, and so we're, we're giving them as, as much as we can to hopefully try to um, get after some of these aerial bombardments that they're facing. Um, but that's a little bit, I, I don't know that there's a perfect answer on the head or heart. Like for me, I, I constantly mm -hmm. cycle through both. It is, it is a right. tough balance. Right. And you kind of, you know, for me, it's like, there's an oath to the constitution and then, um, but my, my higher authority is the Lord. Um, so I'm always looking at it through, um, you know, asking the Lord for wisdom and, and, and how he would have um, it, you steward the authority that you've been given uh, for his, for his purposes. Elizabeth, thank Elizabeth. you. Um, and thank you uh, for the reminder to be praying for the people who are in the rooms where the decisions are being made. I think that's just critically important as well. Elizabeth Newman, as always, thank you for 
joining us today. You guys can find Elizabeth at the Moonshot Group. She joins us regularly here on Mornings with Carmen to give us a perspective on, um, uh, well, what's going on here in the United States of America and around the world related to terrorism and terroristic threats. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. It is uh, St. Patrick's Day, and so uh, I am going to read the prayer on the breastplate of St. Patrick at the close of this hour. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. May this be true of us today and every day, no matter what in the world is going on in the world. Uh, In the next hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're also going to talk with uh, Dr. George Yancey about getting beyond racial division. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is the Faith Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.